If you've got a copy of God's Word, and I sure do hope you do, turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever started reading the book of Revelation only to stop because you didn't understand what it was saying? Revelation is a book that has both confused and frustrated the preacher and the parishioner, the, the teacher and the student, those who diligently study the Word, and those who casually read the Word. The book of Revelation speaks of horsemen and, and plagues. It speaks of trumpets and, and locusts. It speaks of beasts with, with seven heads and ten horns. It speaks of dragons. It speaks of the complete destruction of the earth as we know it, and, and it speaks of a new heaven and a new earth. It is written in picturesque language that can cause our imaginations to run wild, and yet this is a book we need to read because it's a book that reveals our future. It's a book that reveals our destiny. It's a book that reveals where we are headed. You see, what begins in the book of Genesis ends in the book of Revelation. In Genesis, we, we see how the world began. And in Revelation, we see how the world will end. In Genesis, we see the entrance of sin. And in Revelation, we see the end of sin. In Genesis, we are introduced to Satan for the very first time. In Revelation, we see Satan for the very last time. In Genesis, we discover that, that man was created and he inhabited a beautiful garden paradise. In Revelation, we are told about, about a paradise that is to come. In Genesis, we read that sorrow begins and everything that comes with sorrow. In Revelation, we discover that sorrow is removed. You see, in the book of Revelation, we discover that God has a plan for us. God has a plan for this world, and no power on earth or no power in hell can frustrate or stop God's plan. Now this morning, what I want us to do is, is focus on the first eight verses, which, which really are an introduction into this book. And even though these are eight short verses... They give us four truths that each and every one of us need to understand. And they really are the truths that we build this entire book on. And, and so what I want us to do this morning is look at these four truths and hopefully discover some things that can help us as we live in some very difficult days. First of all, we discover the purpose of revelation is to reveal I want you to look at the first two verses. Notice what it says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his service what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now we find the purpose of the book in both the title of the book and in the very first verse. The word revelation or, or the Greek word apocalypsis literally means unveiling. It means 
revealing. It means uncovering or exposing. Now what is amazing to me is, is many people think that this book is difficult to understand. And yet in this very first book, or verse, verse, we discover that the purpose of Revelation is to reveal. We see the book of Revelation as a mystery that is hard to understand. And yet the Bible tells us that the book of Revelation is a book that is to reveal things to us that are difficult to understand. Now notice what, or rather who, is to be revealed. We are told that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now the first thing you need to understand if if you want to understand the book of Revelation is this. It is all about Jesus. On virtually every page of this book, the Holy Spirit pulls back the veil and gives us a picture of Jesus. We see him as the soon coming king. The exalted Lord, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, the conquering King. In almost every page, we see this picture of Jesus. You see, if you understand this book is primarily about Jesus, it will help you better understand the book. Because Revelation allows us to see Jesus in all of his glory. It allows us to see his final victory over sin and Satan and and this wicked world. It's as if God pulls back the curtain and says, take a glimpse, behold my son. In the Old Testament, Jesus is revealed to us even though he has not yet been born in human form. He is revealed to us as the Messiah that is to come. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed as the Son of God who came to this earth to die for our sins and to defeat sin and death. In the epistles, he is revealed as the risen Lord who conquered death. But in Revelation, Jesus is revealed as the glorified Christ who will rule and reign forever. You see, Jesus is not only the lamb that was slain for our sins. Jesus is the king of kings. And Jesus is the Lord of lords. Now, now God gave this vision, this book to John, while John was on the island of Patmos. It was around 85 or 95 A.D. And he was not on an island vacationing. He was on an island as a prisoner. We're going to look at that a little more in detail next week. But we know that around 95 A.D., Domitian was the emperor of Rome. And history says that he was the most cruel of all the Roman emperors. He was even more cruel than Nero. He demanded public worship of himself as Lord and God. And when the Christians refused to worship Domitian, this intense persecution arose. They were subjected to public ridicule, economic hardship, imprisonment, and even death. And that takes us to the second thing that is revealed in Revelation. You see, the book of Revelation not only reveals to us Jesus Christ, it reveals to us what will soon take place. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to make known what will soon take place. 
You see, God gives John a glimpse into the future of the world, of the events that will one day take place. Let me remind you, God has a plan and God has a purpose for planet Earth. And God has a plan and God has a purpose for you. You may think he doesn't. You may think that God doesn't care about you, but but you need to understand whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you are doing right now, God has a plan for you. And the Bible makes it clear through the prophet Jeremiah that it is a good plan. You see, in the Gospels, John tells us to believe. In the epistles, John tells us to be sure But in the book of Revelation, John tells us to be ready. Because the one that we are to believe in, the one that we are to make sure that we know, is coming again. Now there are some people that that read the book of Revelation and they get caught up with that word soon. Because John says that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ to tell us what must soon take place. But that word soon in the Greek, is it's the word that we get our word tachometer from. It's a word that, that measures speed. And what God is saying to John is this. When these events happen, they will happen quickly. They will happen speedily. And you also need to remember what the Bible says in, in the book of 1 Peter, or 2 Peter, chapter 3. Peter says, one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And so when we sit back and we think about soon, and and very soon, for an eternal God that has always been and always will be, soon has a different meaning. Now one thing is certain, Jesus' coming is closer than it's ever been. And most people, including myself, believe that that we are living in that period of time right before Jesus comes back. John Phillips, who was a noted Bible scholar, said thoughtful people are insisting that if we're not living in the age of the apocalypse, we must at least be living in the threshold of that age. And then he gives us some of the, the things that cause Bible scholars to believe that. The return of Israel as a sovereign state that occurred in 1948. The the rise of the nations of Europe as a collective union that has occurred in the last generation. The sudden wealth, importance, and influence of the Muslim Arab world. And that has occurred with, with the oil that has been found in the Arab world. The resurgence of militant Islam and the apostasy of the professing church. When we look at all of these things together, where the Bible says that that things are going to happen in these last days, many of these things seem to be indicative of the fact that we are living in those last days. Now understand, the Bible never presents the return of Christ as being immediate. But what the Bible does say is the return of Christ is imminent. And what that means is that at any moment in history, God can orchestrate the events so that Jesus will return. 
But I want to share with you another truth about that word soon. That word soon carries with it the idea of certainty. In other words, what is written in Revelation is not just a a philosophical thought. It's not a, a fairy tale. It is actual fact. What God is saying when he uses that word soon is he's saying what I'm telling you is true. And it will come to pass. Everything that you read in this book will actually happen. Now notice who this book is written to. The Bible says it is written to God's servants. You see, the book of Revelation seems to to create a fascination among all people. Because it seems like everyone is interested in, in the future. We see that with, with people studying astrology and people going to palm readers and all of these things. And yet the Word of God says that this book is written to the saved. It is written to those who are servants of the one true God. That word servant means bond slave. It is written to those who have relinquished their rights to Jesus Christ. They have said, I am no longer my own. I have been bought with a price. I am yours to do with as you please. I want you to listen to me very carefully. Throughout the epistles, we discover that word slave as a description of a Christian. And you need to understand that if you are a real Christ follower... If you have been born again, then you have become a slave of Jesus Christ. You are not your own. You were bought with the Christ, bought with the price, and you were to honor Christ with your body. And so the first thing we discover is the purpose of Revelation is to reveal. Is to reveal to us Jesus in all of his glory. And so as you read this book, You need to ask yourself, as you read every page, what is this telling me about Jesus? But it's also a book that reveals to us the things that are soon to come. And so as we read this book, we read this book looking at history, looking at world events, recognizing that the coming of Jesus is imminent. Now the second truth we discover In these first eight verses is this. The pursuit of revelation brings joy. When we pursue this book, it brings joy to our life. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take heart what is written in it. Because the time is near. So we're told that this book is to tell us about events that will soon take place. And then John tells us that the time is near. Now let me remind you what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable. In other words, all scripture is useful and valuable to us. And and then Paul says for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And yet, the Bible seems to indicate in verse 3... That there is a special promise, there is a special blessing to those who read this book. The word blessed, 
Here in verse 3 is the Greek word makarios, which, which is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5 when he gives us the Beatitudes. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? And, and in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus said, Blessed are those who, who hunger after righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those. And he, and he gives us the Beatitudes. That word blessed, it literally means a joy that comes from the inside. It's a joy that isn't dependent upon our situation or our circumstance. You see, happiness is a result of what's happening. If, if good things are coming my way, I'm happy. And that's why we see people's emotions all over the place. When things are going my way, when good things are happening to me and those I love, I'm happy. But joy is much more than that. Joy is a, is a happiness that doesn't originate in our happenings. It's a joy that originates in our heart because of who we know, whose we are, and who we are. And when we know the Lord and when we belong to him, we have an inward joy that is there regardless of the situation, regardless of the circumstance. And, and it doesn't mean there's always going to be this, you know, beauty queen smile on our face. But what it does mean is on the inside, we know whatever comes our way, it's all right. Because God is on his throne. Now let me remind you that John is writing to believers who were being persecuted. And he's saying to those who are facing this intense persecution, if you read this book and you understand it, you're going to recognize the joy that you can have in Jesus Christ. Now notice what John says. He says, first of all, we need to read this book. Now, can I tell you, that's one of the problems with the modern church. There's some of you here this morning that you haven't picked up a Bible since last Sunday. And some of you haven't even picked up a Bible since last Sunday because you didn't bring your Bible with you last Sunday. And you come to church and you read some words on the screen and you hear someone preach or someone teach, and you think you're getting the blessings of God's Word. And the Bible says, no, you've got to read the Word of God for yourself. And then that word read, it's an interesting word. It's not just the word that we usually read in the Greek language for read. It's the Greek word anagonosko, which is a compound word. It comes from two words. The first word is Anna, which means up. But when that word Anna is used in a compound word, it means intensity. It means repetition. The word gnosko means to know or to perceive. And so what this word literally means is it means to read and study it over and over and over and over again. You don't just read it casually. You get into the Word of God and you let the Word of God get into you. So are you reading the Word of God? Listen, 
You are never going to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, until you begin to read the Word for yourself. But then he tells us not only do we need to read it, we need to hear it. And that word means to understand. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Have you ever picked up this book and, and you read through a chapter or two? You got through and when you got through you went, what did I just read? I mean, as you were reading, your mind was wandering all over the place. But because you read it, you said, well, I did my duty. I read the word. And yet you don't even remember what you read. This word here means to read with understanding. It means to pay attention, to, to concentrate on what you are reading. That's why, listen, you don't have your quiet time when you're tired. Because if you have it when you're tired, what are you going to do? You're going to fall asleep. <laughs> you have your quiet time when you're alert. When your mind is sharp because there's no book that is more important than this book. And so John says we need to read, we need to hear. And then he says we need to take to heart what we read. That word means to guard, to, to hold fast, to keep. You see, we have a church field. And, and I'm not talking about our church I'm talking about we have a church, the church universal. We have a church filled with people who want to praise knowledge. And yet what the Bible says is important is not the knowledge. It's the praxis. It's the doing. We're told not just to be hearers of the word, but doers. You see, if I hear the word but I don't apply the word, it, it does me no good. I, I've got to read the word and when I read what it says and I understand what it says and it speaks truth into my life, I have to be willing to do what it says. And so John is saying, man, the people who read and hear and, and take to heart this book they are going to have an inward joy that is inside them, that, that affects the outside of them, that they have regardless of the situation or the circumstances they face. And so the pursuit of revelation brings joy. Here's the third truth. The praise of revelation is primarily to Jesus. As we read through this book, we see Jesus being praised. Look at verses 4 through 6. It says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits before his throne and from, the, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Now John begins by, by telling us this book was written to the seven churches of Asia Minor. The seven churches plural. What you need to understand is most often when the Bible talks about the church, it's not talking about the universal church. 
It's talking about a local church that is meeting somewhere, people gathering, serving, worshiping God. Here's what I've discovered is popular today among the 80 plus percent of Americans who claim to be Christians. They say, well, I'm a member of the church. And what that means is, well, I don't really belong to any particular church. I'm not committed to any particular church. I'm just a member of the church. And yet you need to understand that the Bible seems to indicate that if you're a member of the church, you will be a member of a church. And if you're here and you're one of those people that that move from church to church and pop in occasionally, I don't mean to offend you, but Jesus is going to offend you. You're probably not a member of the church. Because if you're a member of the church, you're going to love the groom. And you're going to love the bride, which is the church. And so it's written to seven specific churches that that are now found in Turkey. And these churches were going through extreme persecution. But I want you to understand something else here. Why did did Jesus choose these seven churches? Why did he choose seven? I mean, there were a number of churches. Church at Thessalonica, it's not mentioned here. The church at Philippi, it's not mentioned here. Why these seven churches? Well, the number seven, biblically, always refers to completeness. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's given a message to to seven specific churches. And this message speaks to these churches in their hour of need. But God in his sovereignty directs the message to churches that speak to all the church. All churches of all ages. And so you see, this message that that God gives through John to these seven churches is not just to a first century church. This is a message to the 21st century church. And it's just as relevant to us as it is to them. But then John tells us who the author of the book is. And, And you probably say, well, John's the author of the book. And John says, no. I'm just the scribe. I'm writing down what I am told to write down. I'm writing down what I see and the things that are revealed to me. But then he reveals to us who gives the vision. And he tells us that that the one who gives the vision is the triune God. Notice he tells us about the Father. He says to him who is and was and is to come, the eternal one. Our God is an eternal God. He has no end. He has no beginning. He has always been. He always will be. You say, where did God come from? God didn't come from anywhere. God came and set up camp. God is the eternal one. And by the way, let me just share with you right now. If you're here and you're not a Christ follower and you're struggling with this God thing, every one of us have to come to the conclusion 
that one of two things is eternal. Either matter is eternal, matter has always been, and then somehow, someway, through this cosmic explosion, everything came into being by chance. I got to tell you, I'm not a rocket scientist, but that makes absolute no sense to me. You see, when I look at a creation that has design and order, I have to believe that there is someone behind that design and order. There is a creator. And so we either believe that there is matter which is eternal or we believe that God is eternal. But you can't believe both. Either God created everything, he is the eternal God, or matter is eternal and there is no God, there is no in-between. So we're told that this book is from God the Father, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. And then he tells us it is from the perfect spirit of God. Uh, the, the seven spirits, not the seven spirits, but rather the sevenfold spirit of God. Again, the completeness. Of the Spirit of God. And notice where the Spirit is. The Spirit is before the throne of God, executing God's purpose. It is the Spirit of God that convicts us of our sin, our need for righteousness, and the judgment to come. And that's why we say, listen, you'll never be saved until the Holy Spirit convicts you of your need to be saved. You can sit there until eternity comes, until the Holy Spirit convicts you of your need. You're never going to truly be saved. And so the Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit gave birth to the church and empowered the church. The Holy Spirit gifts believers. The Holy Spirit gave us a perfect word of God. So we see that The author of this book is the Father. The author of this book is the Spirit. And and then he tells us that the author of this book is the Son. And he begins to tell us about Jesus. He says Jesus is the faithful witness. A witness is someone who tells the truth. And the word faithful means reliable. In other words, he is a reliable witness. What he says is true. What he tells us about God is true. What he tells us about sin is true. What he tells us about salvation is true. What he tells us about the judgment to come is true. Whatever Jesus tells us is true. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is alive. He was the first to die and live and never to die again. You say, well, Jesus wasn't the first one in the Bible to be resurrected. Even Jesus resurrected Lazarus. Lazarus died again. Jesus is the first to live, to die, to be resurrected, and to never die again. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first one promising to us what he experienced will one day happen to us. But he is also the ruler of all kings. That means that he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. In John's day, Domitian thought he was the Lord God. In our day, we have a number of people that think that they are God. But Jesus is the Lord. He is the God. He is the ruler of all creation. But then, as we read through this, we see that John just gets happy. 
<laughs> and John can't contain himself any longer. And he just breaks out in praise. And he says, to him who loves us. And that word love is in the continuous present tense. It means that he loved us. He loves us. He will always love us. And nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. And that's what Romans 8 reveals to us. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then, then Paul says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, neither powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, Jesus loves you. He always has and he always will. And he loves you unconditionally. And you may reject his love. You may go into eternity without ever receiving that love, but he loves you. It says next that he freed us. Now what did he free us from? You see, some of you here think that Jesus came to free us from hell. You're wrong. Jesus didn't come to free us from hell. Jesus came to free us from sin. And that word freed is in the past. It's a past action. You see, we don't have to wait to be free. There, there are some of you here that have this idea that, well, until Jesus comes back, we're going to always be controlled by sin. Where do you get that from? The Bible never teaches that once we are saved, we have to live in the bondage of sin anymore. We have been freed from the power of sin and death. Freed past tense. When Jesus saves us, when he redeems us, when his spirit comes to live in us, he gives us the power to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. So don't Give this excuse that you can't help yourself. If you can't help yourself, you're lost. Believers have the power of God living within them. And greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. He has freed us. And then notice, what did he free us to do? He freed us to become a kingdom of priests to serve him forever. See, Jesus loves you. He always has, he always will. He died to set you free from sin. And through his spirit, he empowers you to serve him forever. But there's one final thing I want you to see here in these first eight verses. And that is the promise of revelation. And the promise of revelation is his return, Jesus' return. Look at verses 7 and 8. Look. He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the people of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. Someone once asked Billy Graham whether he was a pessimist or an optimist when it came to world events. And Billy Graham said, I'm an optimist. And the person said, how can you be an optimist with all the suffering and the pain and the hunger in the world? 
To which Graham replied, I've read the last pages of the history book. I know how it's going to end. You see, if you're a Christ follower, you know that regardless of what happens, Jesus is coming back. And because of that, we have hope. And because of that, we can have joy. Because of that, we can endure whatever may come our way. And so as we Christians, we as Christ followers hear that our Lord will return. We look up eagerly anticipating the day, hoping that it may be today, realizing it could be tomorrow. But we eagerly anticipate that day when he's going to come and he's going to set everything right. But notice, it says when he comes, every eye will behold him. Now listen, we're not getting into the theology of, of what that means right now. And, and, and how can every eye see him when I've been told that he will come like a thief in the night? Well, when he comes again, when he comes again, never to leave, every eye will see him. Because he's not just coming to take you out of a difficult situation. He's coming to set up a kingdom. When Jesus comes back again, every eye will see him. And notice what it says. And all the peoples of the earth will do what? They will mourn because of him. Let me tell you. Listen to me. Jesus comes back again to earth. He's coming back to conquer He's coming back to take over. And he's coming back to judge. And the eyes that behold him are going to know that they have rejected him. They have refused him. They have rebelled against him. And as they see him coming, it's not going to be a time of rejoicing. It's going to be a time of mourning. Because they know what comes next. The one true God that they have rejected and put themselves on the, on the throne of their lives, they will now answer to. So where are you? His coming is imminent. It could be any day. It could be today. You say, does anything else have to happen? No. Jesus could come back today. His coming is imminent. Are you ready? Are you prepared? And though baptism is important, like this precious young couple did this morning, baptism is not what makes you ready. Baptism is just an outward symbol of of. What's happened inside of you through the power of God coming to live in you? Belonging to a church isn't what's important. If you've been saved, you're going to want to be a part of the church. God help those whose names are on a church roll who hardly are ever here. Boy, are they going to be surprised. You say, Rocky, you're judging. No, I'm just telling you. 
There are a lot of people that are going to be surprised because they think because I joined a church, I've had my ticket punched. Let me tell you. The only way you're going to be ready for Jesus is to know him in such an intimate way that he's changed your life and he is ruling your life today. So is he? I can't answer that for you. Only you can. But I really do believe with all my heart there's some of you here this morning that the Holy Spirit of God is just speaking to your heart right now telling you you're not ready. You know it. You know that you are living in denial. Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you've joined the church. Maybe you think I'm a pretty good person. I don't know where you're at. But there are some of you right now that the Holy Spirit is drawing you to Jesus. And Jesus wants to save you. And if you leave here this morning being drawn by the Holy Spirit. And yet refusing to respond. You may never have another chance. And so I want you to bow your head with me. I want you to close your eyes. So we begin this series on, on these seven churches that Jesus gives specific messages to. I want to ask you a question. Are you ready? And if you're not, will you surrender your life to him right now? If you're here and you need to do that, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer with me right now with all your heart. Dear Jesus, I come to you this morning asking you to forgive me of all my sins. Lord, I ask you to come into my heart and change me and make me brand new. I know that you loved me. You proved it by being beaten beyond recognition. By being nailed to a cross in my place. You proved it by dying for my sins. I know you love me. And I'm giving my life to you. I believe you defeated sin and death. Now come into my life. Take control. From this moment on, Jesus... I want to live for you. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving me. Amen.